acoustic guitar talk about being an artist? And he's like, uh, come on. <laughs> it's a little bit, a little bit grandiose. But we are to make a joyful noise to the Lord. And who knows? Maybe some of you are actually artists. I don't think Marianne is still here. She would qualify, certainly. You guys can stay seated. I 
worship when some of you will have heard everyone else. Hallelujah, we are glad. 
we're Baptists, but you can clap. Mm. <laughs> when the Lord brought back the captives of Zion, the captives of Zion, the captives of Zion, when the Lord brought back the captives of Zion, we were like those who dreamed that our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues joyful shouts and we said the Lord has done great things for us hallelujah we are glad hallelujah we are glad hallelujah Father, thank you for this day. We are so grateful, Father. It is another of your good gifts that you have given to us. And Father, we are just so grateful for them all. Um, we are so grateful, Father, that your spirit prays when we don't know how to pray, and there is no possible way that we could ever figure out how to give you the thanks that you are due. But Father, we love you. And we pray, Father, that uh, having filled our bellies, uh, our minds would engage, and this afternoon would be profitable for us. In Christ's name, amen. And there we go. We're here this afternoon to talk about art. As I was looking through my library, I took note of the fact that that term is used in a number of different ways. Um, let me just give you a few examples of titles that I came across. There is the art of Bible translation, and the art of debate, the art of persuasion in the ancient church. There is an entire series of volumes on the art of woodworking, and even a great old Puritan volume on preaching called the art of prophesying. But we're not here to talk about that kind of art. Well, maybe woodworking. We want to spend our time this afternoon talking about what we would more specifically define as fine art, painting, music, sculpture, and the like. The uh, 
church has always had a complicated relationship with the arts, particularly with visual arts. Uh, she has vacillated, depending upon time and tradition, uh, between idolatry on one extreme and iconoclasm on the other. Iconoclasm being, let's go destroy all the icons and statues and so forth. So that's what you're seeing there. That's an example of it. Someone came along at some point in history and decided that shouldn't be in the church and took it upon themselves to seek to destroy it. Um, every now and then, the church arrives at a biblical balance. Um, and understands the use and the value of art while also recognizing that it has been and can be abused. This is uh, a painting by uh, Cranach. He is an, uh, an artist from the Reformation period, and this is his portrayal of the Last Judgment. This is a piece of art that was never intended to be in a church because the Reformation comes along and says, yeah, it's, it's idolatrous to have all of this in there. So this is where the church has been. It's wherever you want to look at, at a given attitude toward art, you'll find somebody in the history of the church who has had that attitude. More recently, of course, there has been an added challenge. In addition to the issue of the relationship between art and the church, many have struggled to think through the issue of how one ought to respond to art when art now seems dominated by an anti-Christian view of the world. And when I speak of an anti-Christian view of the world, I'm not speaking only of that which is obviously anti-Christian. I'm not speaking only of that which is obviously pornographic, for instance, or obviously evil. I'm speaking of that which is at its core a rejection of the search for what is good and true and beautiful. We're going to talk quite a bit about those things. Instead of the good and the true and the beautiful, much modern and postmodern art seems to be on an intentional quest for that which is absurd and irrational and ugly. Stuart McAllister, I think, uh, was right when he wrote, much energy and effort of our artists and cultural architects has gone into debunking, dismantling, or deconstructing all that is good, beautiful, and respected to be replaced with the shallow, the ugly, the ephemeral. One very obvious example of this can be seen in the realm of architecture. Uh, one of the last executive orders that Donald Trump issued prior to his departure from the White House was called the Make Federal Buildings Beautiful Again order. <laughs> President Biden came into office and immediately rescinded that executive order. 
But some legislators have now recently introduced a bill entitled Beautifying Federal Civil Architecture Act. And the bill is in response to the recognition that there is value in beauty and that in the modern era, we have lost that understanding. And as a result, instead of erecting buildings that look like this, which is the Capitol building, of course, we erect buildings that look like this, which is the FBI building. Now, this is all reminiscent of what happened in Russia under the old Soviet Union. Prior to the communist revolution uh, and the rejection of the Christian tradition and worldview, the architects of Russia created buildings like this. After the revolution, they created things like this, right? which is an example of something called brutalism in architecture, which is a very appropriate name. There are exceptions, of course, but a good deal of contemporary art is what Phil Riken calls the art of alienation. Riken gives it that label because this kind of art only provides one side of the picture. Some of us were talking about this over lunch. If it is true at all, it is true only about the disorder of a fallen and depraved world. But what it fails to offer, and indeed because of its disconnect from that which is true, it can never offer, is the possibility of redemption. There is no hope in art that denies the truth. And the truth is that though we exist in a ugly, fallen world, it is a world into which God has come. And it's a world which is destined for glory. So ultimately, this kind of art, as we might expect in a post-Christian world, dishonors God because it is not in keeping with the truth and the beauty of his character. So we go back to, whoops, I'm going the wrong way. All right, we go back to something like this. You're going to have a hard time finding the good and the true and the beautiful in this. So we need to recover, and for some of us perhaps, what we need to what, what we need to discover for the first time is a biblical understanding of art, as well as an understanding that art is not for art's sake. Art is for God's sake. And so, as usual, I'm proceeding under a cloud of frustration this afternoon uh, due to the extent of the subject matter and the limitations of time. So I'll, of necessity, be forced to work in very broad strokes. See what I did there? Broad strokes, art, get, yeah, okay, just, sometimes right after you eat, you know, mine's not working so well. If we're going to talk about a biblical view of the arts, we should probably consult the Bible. Just a thought. So, as we turn to the Bible, what are we going to find? What we will find, at least what I hope to demonstrate, is that the Bible does two things. First, it affirms the value of art, and second, it protects art from becoming twisted 
by the corrupting effects of sin. The Bible affirms the value of art. That is going to be extremely clear on the pages of Scripture. Where the church has had its difficulty is trying to figure out where exactly art fits, but not in discerning from the pages of Scripture the fact that art is something God-given. So the Bible affirms art. We're going to see that, and we're also going to see how the Bible protects art from becoming twisted by the corrupting effects of sin, and this is where, at least one example, is where idolatry comes in. Now, depending on how widely we want to define the concept of art, there are several starting points which we could look at. If we include architecture in our definition, which I suppose we already have, then we could begin with Enoch, um, who, according to Genesis chapter 4, verse 17, built the first city. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Or if we are including music in our definition, which I think we must, then we could speak of Jubal. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. But since there's not much more to say about those two men than what you've just seen, we're going to start our discussion somewhere else, and that is Exodus chapter 31. So if you've got your Bibles or can reach one in a pew, turn with me to Exodus 31. It's a good place to start because it's here that God personally and specifically calls two men named Basilel and Aholiab, and he calls them to be artists. And the passage is going to teach us at least four fundamental principles for a Christian theology of the arts. And we're going to just go through these one at a time. The first is this. The artist's call and gift comes from God. The artist's call and gift comes from God. Exodus chapter 31 begins with God's calling of these two men to be his official artists, and God grants to them the gifts necessary for the fulfilling of their vocation. So, Exodus 31, verse 1, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic designs for work in gold, in silver, and in bronze. We'll stop there for now. Just for context, by this point, God has already provided very specific instructions for the building of the tabernacle and all the furnishings of the tabernacle. In doing this, he has specified that this work was not to be done in some utilitarian manner. God's not a brutalist, like the architecture that we saw earlier. It was not to be the ancient equivalent of a gulag. 
Instead, the Lord makes a point of repeatedly telling Moses that this work is to be done skillfully. You see that in Exodus 26, 1, Exodus 28, 3. So, Bezalel and Oliab are God's personal choice for the job. The scripture literally says they are called by name. This is where Oliab is called. I, have appoint, I myself have appointed with him a Oliab. And in the hearts of all who are skillful, I have put skill that they may make all that I have commanded. So these artists are called and their work was considered to be so sacred that their names have been preserved for posterity. We're talking about them today. These men were not just called, they were also gifted. God gave Bezalel the skill, ability, and knowledge, wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and all, in all kinds of craftsmanship. So this is talking about skill and ability, as well as the understanding to do this kind of thing. It's not only something that's in one's hands, it's also in the mind. Jean Edward Veith makes the point that these terms can be used as criteria for evaluating any work of art, which may exemplify or fall short in some measure when it comes to skill, intelligence, knowledge, or craftsmanship. Taken together, those terms refer to what the artist is thinking in his mind, feeling in his heart, and then creating in his hands. The artistic work that Bezalel and Aholiab did came from the whole person, all of who they were. And this reflects a deep truth about the character of God, namely that he himself is the supreme artist. He is the supreme creator. We know this because the very first thing that we are told about what God does is that he creates. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And being made in the image of a creating God, he has created us to be creators. Now, some are more creative than others. God does not give his gifts in equal measure. There was a time when I tried to paint. It did not go well. I was listening. What, who, who's the guy with the big hair? Bob Ross, right? So I was watching Bob Ross. This is before the kids came along. This is how long ago this was. And I thought, looks easy enough. I'll give it a try. And I got a bunch of canvases and one in the trash, two in the trash, three in the trash. I was left with one where you could actually, actually recognize what it was supposed to be. So I kept that one. That's down in the basement where it belongs. If you're ever over at the house, you can search it out. Not everybody is as creative as everyone else. 
but for those who are so gifted. Whether those gifts are used as a vocation or an avocation, the source and the providential calling are from God. God gifts the gift of art and the ability to make it. Second thing we want to look at from Exodus 31 is that God loves all kinds of art. Now, we need to be careful here. All kinds does not mean that all works of art are good or godly. What we mean, of course, is that God blesses a rich variety of art forms. In Exodus 31, God gives Bezalel a wide range of artistic gifts, and then God tells him something. I have filled him with the Spirit of God and wisdom and in understanding and knowledge and in all kinds of craftsmanship, right? all kinds of craftsmanship, to make artistic designs for work in gold, in silver, and in bronze, and in the cutting of stones for settings, and in the carving of wood that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. And Aholiab was equally versatile. Uh, later, we learned that in addition to helping Bezalel with his other work, Aholiab served as the craftsman and designer and an embroiderer in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen. Most artists do their best work in a narrow specialty. Think of you know, Michelangelo was primarily a sculptor and when he was forced to paint this Sistine Chapel, uh, that was out of his comfort zone. He, he did not consider himself a painter. Most people focus on a relatively narrow area. These men had the ability, given by God, to work with equal skill in a, a, a wide variety of different disciplines. In Exodus 31, God sanctifies a wide spectrum of artistic gifts by blessing all kinds of craftsmanship. Not all for forms of art are explicitly mentioned here or anywhere else in the Bible. What the Bible does show, however, is that God blesses various kinds of art. Bezalel and Aholiab needed to work in so many different media because the tabernacle had so many different parts. These men and those who assisted them were called to employ all of these skills in the creation of the tabernacle as God had designed it. God, in, in Exodus chapter 31, beginning with verse 6, God goes on to say, And behold, I myself have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, and in the hearts of all who are skillful I have put skill, that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of testimony and the mercy seat upon it and all the furniture of the tent, the table also and its utensils and the pure gold lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering also with its utensils and the laver and its stand, the woven garments as well, and the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his son with which to carry on their priesthood, the anointing oil also, 
and the fragrant incense for the holy place. They are to make them according to all that I have commanded you. And if we were to take the time to look closely at all these men were commissioned to do in regard to the building of the tabernacle, we would take note of the fact that Bezalel and Aholiab produced three different kinds of art. There was symbolic art, there was representational art, and there was non-representational or abstract art. And here is where I have had to revise some of my thinking, because I'm not a big fan of abstract art. And yet, we see it in regard to the tabernacle. Symbolic art uses a physical form to stand for a spiritual reality, like the Ark of the Covenant, for instance. The Ark of the Covenant symbolized atonement. The golden lampstand, also in the tabernacle, symbolized the light of God's glory and grace there among his people. Representational art imitates life by portraying a recognizable object from the physical universe. Now, you can't see it very well here, but this is a good example from the, the, the tabernacle, the, the, the uniform, if you will, the robe of the high priest. And on that robe are embroidered pomegranates. So we're taking this representation. It's something that is real in life, and we're using it as an artistic expression to imitate life. And then finally, non-representational or abstract, it, it, this is just pure form. It's the colors of the curtains in the holy place in the tabernacle or the shape of the actual spaces as the tabernacle was designed. You'll, you'll note in verse 4 uh, that uh, Bezalel was intended to make artistic designs, not just paint a piece of fruit, but designs, things that are in the abstract. As the house of God on earth, the tabernacle was a supreme statement of eternal truth. And so when we examine its design, its ornamentation, uh, we see a divine endorsement of symbolic, representational, and abstract art. Now, historically, Christians have affirmed and valued symbolic art, especially if its symbolism is religious, and also representational art because it imitates the world that God has made. What Christians have tended to dismiss is the abstract. And as I say, this is where I'm having to rethink things. Now, there's a reason for this, of course. There's a reason why Christians have struggled with non-representational art. And the reason that I and others have struggled to appreciate this is because of its, I think, it's because of this expression in modern art, which so often serves as a conduit for chaos rather than order and beauty. And so if you go up to 
beacon in the DIA. We've spoken about this before. You take a walk through, you're going to come across an exhibit, which is a literal pile of broken glass. Well, it's chaos. And so much of modern abstract art is intended to express that kind of, of, of a, a, a chaos, uh, rather than order, rather than beauty, which is what we find in the world as God created it. And yet, as seen in the tabernacle, abstraction has God's blessing as much as any other art form. And the perversion of a particular form doesn't negate the proper use of the form. The example of the, the tabernacle proves that God loves all kinds of art in all kinds of media, all kinds of styles which he has provided and that they are intended to be used in keeping with his character. As John Calvin said, all the arts come from God and are to be respected as divine inventions. Some of you might be surprised to hear something like that from Calvin. He's been given a bad rap in a lot of ways, and I think this is probably one of them. But Calvin recognizes what we're talking about here today. Now, the third thing we see in Exodus 31 is that God maintains high standards for goodness, for truth, and for beauty. One of the characteristics of contemporary thinking in regard to art might be summarized by the phrase, anything goes. But that's certainly not the case when we're looking at a biblical understanding of art. When we look at God's view of art, we find that his standards are as high as his standards for anything else. If we're going to think biblically about art, then we need to think about things like goodness and truth and beauty. These three have historically been referred to as the transcendentals. This is where art is rescued from the chasm of subjectivism. These standards are not relative. They are absolute. A Christian view of art stands then in opposition to the postmodern assumption that there are no absolutes. Let's take each of these in turn. Goodness is both an ethical and an aesthetic standard. Paul just comes right out and is very blunt about it. Everything we do, we are to do to the glory of God. Obviously, Bezalel and Aholiab were not allowed to make anything that violated the commandments which God had set down, particularly the second commandment, which outlawed idolatrous images of the divine being or any other form of false worship. Similarly, Christian artists are not permitted to make anything that is immoral or designed to serve as an object of religious worship. That would be outside of the bounds of what a Christian artist um, was gifted to accomplish. But goodness is also an aesthetic category. Israel's artists were called to make good art, art that was excellent, art that demonstrated thorough mastery of technique in a particular artistic discipline. This is why God supernaturally gifted them. At the end of his instructions in verse 11, God 
said that Bezalel and Aholiab were to make everything according to his specifications. And if we scan the preceding chapters, we see just how specific God can be. God's instructions for the building of the tabernacle were extremely careful and specific. And that reminds us that his perfection sets the standard for whatever we create in his name. Whatever we might happen to make, not only in the visual arts, but in all arts and indeed in whatever we do, we should make it as well as we can, offering to God, as we spoke of earlier this morning in worship, offering to God our very best, because that's what he deserves. Now, to be pleasing to God, art must be true as well as good, and art, it has been said, is to be an incarnation of the truth. It penetrates the surface of things to portray things as they really are. The whole building of the tabernacle, the, the, the tabernacle itself was designed to communicate truth about God and about God's relationship with his people. And in order to fulfill that purpose, the artistry that went into the tabernacle had to be true. It had to be true to nature. When it represented something in creation, flowers, pomegranates, that had to be true to that thing that God had made. It also had to be true to who God is. Each part of the tabernacle said something about God. It was art in the service of truth. And art does that in various ways. Sometimes it tells a story. And that story is true to human experience. It's an incarnation of the human condition. Sometimes art tells the truth in the form of propositions, especially characteristic in literary art forms, which speak with words. Art can convey emotional and experiential truth, and it can do this without words, as is so often the case in music. But whatever stories it tells, whatever ideas or emotions it communicates, art is only true if it points in some way to the one true story, the story of God's creation and the fall and the triumph of grace through Jesus Christ. Modern and postmodern modern art often claim to tell the truth about the pain and the absurdity of human existence, but they only get so far. They only tell part of the story. The Christian approach to the human condition is more complete and for that reason more hopeful and ulti ultimately more truthful. When true Christian art portrays the suffering of fallen humanity, it does so with a tragic sensibility. This is Rembrandt's painting of Christ calming the storm. And you see in this both of those things coming together. You see the storm, obviously, and you see the terror on the part of the disciples. And you're seeing the fact that something is wrong with the world. And yet, 
bottom right hand, there's Jesus in the boat, calm, about to still the storm. There's the truth about how things are, and there's the truth about how things will be. That's what Christian art does. Here's more Rembrandt, Christ being taken down from the cross. That's the world as it is. But for Rembrandt, it doesn't stop there because he goes on to paint something else, the ascension of Christ to glory. Something the world can't do. Because for the world, there's no hope. There's no redemption. There's just the ugliness that we see around us every day. You could even make a comparison using Rembrandt's own self-portrait. He was an ugly guy. The ravages of the fall are on his face. But he also did other portraits. This is his vision of Jesus. Right. So y y you get within the scope of true good Christian art everything. The world as it is in truth. There's a sense of not only of what is, but of what can become. Christian art is redemptive at its best. It's always an interpretation of reality, and the Christian ought to interpret reality in its totality, including the hope that has come into the world through the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Rather than giving up and giving in to meaninglessness and despair, Christian art, when done well, demonstrates that there's a way out. So the kind of art that glorifies God is good and true and finally beautiful. Phil Riken said, God is a great lover of beauty, as we can see from the collection, that hang, a collection of his work that hangs in the gallery of the universe. As we've seen uh, from the comparison of architectural philosophies, worldview drives action. Uh, so the worldview of Soviet communism drove them to a near total emphasis on function over form, resulting in ugliness. But God considers form to be as important or nearly as important as function. And so it was not enough for the tabernacle to be laid out in the right way. It also had to be beautiful at the same time. There was beauty in the color of the fabrics, the sparkle of the gems that the priests wore, the shape of its objects, the symmetry of the proportions. The tabernacle was a thing of beauty, and God wanted it that way. God designed it that way. He made sure of this by taking the unprecedented step of endowing artists 
with artistic gifts. By his spirit. And all of this tells us something about what kind of artist God is. He is an artist who loves beauty. Beauty and truth then belong together. John Keats said, beauty is truth, truth is beauty, that is all ye need to know. Now that's an exaggeration. Beauty and truth are not identical, and they are not all you need to know. But exaggeration is part of the art form of poetry, which Keats was employing. And so we'll simply take his point, which is that truth and beauty are interconnected. The problem with some modern and postmodern art is that it seeks to offer truth at the expense of beauty. It tells the truth only about the ugliness and alienation of the world, leaving out the beauty of creation and redemption. A good deal of so-called Christian art tends to have the opposite problem. It tries to show beauty without admitting the truth about sin. And to that extent, it gives a false picture. That kind of art is being dishonest about the implications of our depravity. Such a world can be nice to imagine, but it's not the world God sent his son to save. So what kind of art is able to meet God's standards as we see it exemplified in the tabernacle? Not art that is bad or false or ugly, but art that incarnates the good and the true and the beautiful. In other words, our art must be in keeping with the character of God who himself is good and true and beautiful. It's this good, true, and beautiful God who says to us in words that might well serve as a manifesto for the arts, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. That's a great description of the ethical and aesthetic norms which should serve as the foundation of art. Now, I should clarify that what we've said doesn't mean that goodness and truth and beauty are always easy to define, especially beauty, nor does it mean that Christian artists never portray anything ugly. We have truth to tell about the ugliness of the fallen world. Christianity offers the best explanation for that ugliness in its doctrine of depravity. The world has been spoiled by sin. Francis Schaeffer, uh, Francis Schaeffer um, helpfully identifies this as the minor theme of Christian art. He says, The lostness of humanity outside of Christ and the defeated and sinful side to the Christian's life. That's the minor theme. That is reality, and reality must be portrayed. But there is another side. There is a major theme, and that major theme is the grace of God that gives meaning and purpose to life. The major theme is that which defeats, counteracts the minor theme and brings out beauty from something that is ugly. Finally, Art is for the glory of God. Artists sometimes talk about art for art's sake. And what they mean is that there is intrinsic worth to art. It has a value in and of itself apart from any utility. 
Emerson wrote, beauty is its own excuse for being. Now, like Keats, if you're going to take Emerson literally, he's going too far, because even beauty serves the glory of God. But the artistry of the tabernacle at least proves that beauty has its own intrinsic value. It doesn't have to be practical. Beauty can just be beautiful and be appreciated for being beautiful. You look at some of the features of the tabernacle, and there is gold molding on the Ark of the Covenant. Why? It didn't serve a purpose. It was purely decorative. Some of the artistry in the tabernacle was art for art's sake, in the proper expression of that phrase. The problem is that art can easily become idolatry. And when that happens, art is seen to exist only for its own sake and not for any higher purpose. Or perhaps it exists for some higher purpose within creation that nevertheless falls short of the glory of God. So, this is what we're seeing. Paul described it in Romans 1. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. That's the danger of art that is not grounded in the understanding that everything we do must be for the glory of God. The giving and receiving of art is as fallen as any other human enterprise. When we experience art, then, we, we, we've got to ask the question, whom does this glorify? Rather than dedicating their work to God, there are artists who produce it for their own glory. Even Christian artists can, submit, can succumb to pride for the recognition of their work, as we all can in any endeavor we engage in. There, there, there's a reason for this, I think. It's the best things in life that threaten to steal our worship. And art is such a wonderful gift that those who love it sometimes forget to praise the giver. Anyone who doubts the tendency of artistry, uh, artistry to become idolatry needs only to continue reading into Exodus chapter two, uh, chapter 32. You know what happens in Exodus chapter 32? following all that we have seen about proper God-honoring art, art is used to create a golden calf. Very next chapter. The whole sordid episode shows what happens when people pursue art for their own purposes. They end up worshiping the art rather than God. So how do artists avoid making this mistake? How do we all avoid making this mistake in whatever, thing, in, in whatever activity we're endeavoring? It's by acknowledging that what we're doing is a gift from God. Igor Stravinsky, the composer, said, I take no pride in my artistic talents. They are God-given, and I see absolutely no reason to become puffed up over something that one has received. That is a very well-balanced understanding. Many of you know that when Bach wrote his compositions, at the end of each of his compositions, he would sign SDG, which stood for the Latin soli deo gloria, to the glory of God, 
alone. Art is not for art's sake. Art is for God's sake. That's what the tabernacle was all about. Every detail in that sacred building was for the praise of the glory of God. The altar and the atonement cover, the mercy seat, testified to his grace. The table of the showbread proclaimed his providence. The lampstand spread his light. Even the things that were not symbolic were still there for God. This is why the tabernacle was made so carefully with such fine materials and elaborate decorations because it was all for the glory of God. As the whole world is, by the way. John Piper made this point and it has always struck with me in his book called The Pleasures of God. He wrote about things that could only be for God's own pleasure. Tiny little flowers growing up out of rocks on mountaintops where no people ever went. Why is it there? Because God takes joy in it. Whales and dolphins, you know, frolicking out in the ocean and nobody's seeing it, nobody's enjoying it. But God is. Creation is like that. God created for his own glory, for his own pleasure. Creation doesn't exist for itself, and art doesn't exist for itself. It exists for God's sake. Which means non-Christians, as well as Christians, can create things that are pleasing to God. It's possible. A man named Nigel Goodwin, Christian artist, said God in his wisdom did not give all his gifts to Christians, which is good. When you have, your, uh, when you have some plumbing problems and you need someone to come in and fix it, I just want to know, do you know how to do this? I don't need their testimony. Right? Even if God is glorified by art that is not explicitly offered in his honor, he is most truly praised when his glory is the ultimate aim. Francis Schaeffer wrote this, Christian art is the expression of the whole life of the whole person who is a Christian. What a Christian portrays in his art is the totality of life. I mentioned a moment ago the fact that Bach would sign his compositions with the letters SDG for Soli Deo Gloria, the glory of God alone. This was a pious act on his part. He wanted to indicate that his art was an offering to God. But the important thing was not the letters that he added at the end. The important thing was the composition. The important thing was the music. That in itself was the testimony to his faith. The SDG was just some icing at the end. To summarize, the artist's call and gift come from God. God loves all kinds of art. 
God maintains high standards for goodness, truth, and beauty, and art is for the glory of God. We find that these principles are not only biblical, but also, as we would expect, they are true to God's character. In his wonderful little book, Art and the Bible, Francis Schaeffer describes a mural in the art museum at Nucatel, painted by the Swiss artist Paul Robert. Uh, as you may know, Francis Schaeffer spent many, many years in Switzerland. Uh, he writes this, and I know you can't really see it from here, so Schaeffer's describing it. In the background of this mural, he pictured Nucatel, the lake on which it is situated, and even the art museum, which contains the mural. In the foreground, near the bottom, is a great dragon, wounded to the death. Underneath the dragon is the vile and the ugly, the pornographic and the rebellious. Near the top, Jesus is seen coming in the sky with his endless hosts. Now, we're going to focus in on the left side. On the left side is a beautiful stairway, and on the stairway are young and beautiful men and women carrying the symbols of the various forms of art, architecture, music, and so forth. And as they are carrying them up and away from the dragon to present them to Christ, Christ is coming down to accept them. And what Robert's mural represents is the triumph of beauty and the redemption of the arts. Scripture says that when the new heavens and the new earth arrive, the nations are going to carry their treasures into it. I think that's what he's trying to portray. Schaefer comments that the hope of this future reality should shape the present. If these things are to be carried up to the praise of God and the Lordship of Christ at the second coming, then we should be offering them to God now. May God make it so. Father, we pray that uh, everything that we do, whether it be art as a hobby, art as a profession, whether it be a vocation, Father, whether we be woodworkers or plumbers or computer programmers or housewives, whatever the case may be, Father, we pray that we would do all to your glory. Enable us by the power of your Spirit as you enabled Belazel. Be Bezalel and Aholiab, Father. Enable us by your Spirit to have whatever skill you desire us to possess so that you may be glorified in what we do. And we will give you thanks, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we usually take a few minutes if anybody has any comments or questions. We can do that now. Ken. Mm-hmm.
Yeah, I, it, it's anything that was, uh, now I don't know what's going on now, but anything that was built during that time in the Soviet Union, in Cuba, right? We saw it when we were in China. Um, that worldview affects what a culture will produce. And what a rejection of the Christian worldview produces is ugly. It's just how it is. It's going to be interesting to see what happens in our own society in the future. Because as we mentioned earlier, there are those who are trying to kind of you know, maintain uh, that concern for beauty but if the culture continues the way it, it is, uh, I don't see anybody being able to stem the tide. Yes, Marsha. Sure, yeah, well, a absolutely. I mean, fashion certainly can be considered a, a, an art form, but you also see what's behind it. You look at, I mean, you just pay attention to fashion shows, right? What's being produced. Nobody actually wears these things, but you get an idea of, you know, of, of what's happening in the culture from... Uh, from this, and it's it's not good. I, I, we're not we're not going in a in a good direction. Yeah, brother. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think um, there, there are some who have gone back and looked at some of the things Francis Schaeffer did and are kind of questioning it, but um, you can do that with anybody. But I think overall, you know, Schaeffer was right on, on the mark. A culture is going to produce from itself. What comes out of a culture is going to reflect a culture. And certainly, you know, one of the most obvious ways that happens is, is through art. But elsewhere as well, you know, you mentioned Soviet Union and, and you know, the cars they made. And it was, you know, you'd have to put fuel in and then you'd have to shake the car before you could try to start it. And it, it, it was just the, the, the absurdity of it all which manifested itself not only in architecture, but all of these things that we take for, for granted. Right? Well, okay, I'm gonna go down to the auto dealership and 
going to pick out a color that I like. And it's like, you know, there's a reason why we have that ability. There's a reason why we can go into a grocery store and have not just this kind of food, but this kind of food in all these different brands. I don't like the color of that can. I'll take my beans from this company. <laughs> but go back to the Soviet Union. And I, you know, maybe you've heard of them too. I've heard stories of people who, who came here from the Soviet Union and they you know, would have breakdowns when they went into a grocery store because they were just so overwhelmed. It's like, okay, well, who a culture is ends up being reflected in the normal things of life. Where are we moving now? where we're being told constantly, you, you have to do less. We're not striving anymore. We're not striving for better. We're not striving to do things that we couldn't have imagined doing in the past. Now we're told, no, we, we, we've gone too far and we've got to come back. And you've got to have, we've got to do less. We've got to have less ambition We've got to, you know, seek to be content with where we were decades ago and go back there right? because we're going to kill the earth or whatever the rationale is. It's, it's, a, it's a strange time we're living in. Yeah, exactly right. When you come up to the time of the Reformation, you've got this really um, significant shift in, in understanding. Uh, there, there had been, um, up until that point, this understanding of religious vocation. If you really want to serve God, you have to become a priest or a nun or something like that. And the reformers recovered this understanding of vocation and said, no, no, no. Everything you do, you do for God. Everything you do can honor God. You don't have to go into a monastery and you don't have to wear a collar. You don't have to do all that. If you're a farmer, you're glorifying God in your farming. Right? If, you're a, if you're a brewer... <laughs> You're glorifying God in your brewing. And they, that, that was recovered in the Reformation. And along with that then comes the Renaissance. Right? Yeah, art is not just to put up on the walls of a church. Art can glorify God in a lot of different contexts. And all of that really came out of that recovered understanding that the church once had and I think lost. Yes, Marsha. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah, that's uh, kind of a secular way of summarizing Paul. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's it. All right. Well, I hope so. I hope it was worth staying for. Uh, I'm sorry, Tess? Good, good. Praise God. I'm glad to hear it. Thank you. Well, uh, Father, thanks again for today. Send us home, Father, safely, and uh, we pray, Father, that you would bring us back together once more uh, next Lord's Day to join together again in worship. Thank you again in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for staying, everybody. Have a safe trip home. <laughs>